Welcome back to Call and Shots. I'm Seth Partnow on the Call and App. With me today is my longtime friend and frequent past podcast collaborator, uh, for whom I named this episode especially. I thought you would appreciate that. <laughs> so, Jared Dubin, uh, what kind of playoffs has it been? I greatly appreciate, as I said to you earlier, the the name for this episode. Um, there was also a I'm sure pe- not sure if people know, but there's an Aaron Sorkin tie-in with what kind of playoffs has it been that's like the always the uh the name of the season finale the first season finale for his shows is like what kind of day has it been um and the previous podcast we did together also had an aaron sorkin tie-in with uh with quo vatimus which is which means where are we going and factored heavily into sports night the late lamented sports night so but seriously i'm asking I'm, i'm not just making references i'm asking the question what kind of playoffs has it been? Yeah, it's been um, interesting, I suppose. Um, I, I think that we're going to eventually talk about this at some point anyway, so let's just get right to it now. I think it's one where people are going to draw sweeping conclusions that maybe don't necessarily follow from what we've seen. I tend to think that happens way too often from playoff series, like a team wins or loses one playoff series, and that definitively means X, Y, or Z. Um, right. Yeah, not, I, I not to say, go ahead. I, I would say I would say that uh, that 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 thing only happens in season that that end with the tie with the with the trophy being given out. Only those seasons are the ones where people draw sweeping conclusions. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, not like. I don't think it's necessarily wrong, but I I read, you know, Hollinger's piece the other day at The Athletic about how, you know, last year's two finals teams both lost to, quote unquote, space ball teams um, with the the Suns losing to the Mavs and the Bucks losing to the Celtics. And, And I don't necessarily disagree with that characterization, but. You know, the, the Bucks won the title last year. The Suns have been arguably the best team in the league for two years. Um, the Bucks didn't have Chris Middleton uh, in round two and had Brooke Lopez still, you know, working his way back from an injury that kept him out for five months um, and made a trade that sort of depleted their wing rotation and didn't allow them to do as many things as they did last year. And the Suns didn't have their small ball center option this year with Dario Saric like they had last season. And I don't know necessarily that those teams losing in the second round definitively means that like you can't play the way those teams played this year. And you, you know, you have to go all in on five out all the time. Um, well, first of all, both of those teams, you know, could do that at, at certain points over the past couple of years and just couldn't get there for, for various reasons this season. But there's also the league moves in, waves and ebbs and flows and everybody tries to copy each other and you know so Miami went to the finals two years ago lost in the first round last year but now they're back you know and and I don't know that it's like the talent upgrades that they made this offseason I think are you know part of why you know bringing in PJ Tucker bringing in Kyle Lowry but Lowry's been out for a lot of the playoffs a lot of it is just like internal improvement or guys that were not rotation players suddenly becoming important rotation players so I mean, every season also, is different. Also, like let's let's be honest. Like their their playoff MVP those, thus far might be Pascal Siakam's elbow. <laughs> I mean, the, if we're gonna like they, I mean they were impressive and played well in that series, 
but that series was essentially over before it started because of that. That's true. And, and look, I like you know, you and, can say that. And that's not to and that's not to take anything away from them. That's that's just right. That's I was going to say, like, I saw a tweet this morning from um, from Andy Glockner who was lamenting that essentially, you know, the regular season has become useless and the only thing that matters is injuries in the playoffs. Um, and it's like, that's not new. Like, you know, <laughs> injuries have been in the, affecting the playoffs every year for ever. There's, there's no team that gets to the finals or the title without, you know, encountering some sort of injuries on either side of the bracket along the way that affect who they play. Like it's, it, 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 it happens every year now and it has happened every year forever we just don't remember as much going back however many years because it's really hard to remember the specifics of injuries that happened in like 1992 uh let me see what who made the finals that year i'm sure I, i'm sure we could piece it together if we uh if we thought uh, about the bulls it, made the finals that was their first yeah. there's a second title there's a second title the first one is easy. It's like they like Magic and, and Byron Scott and James Worthy missed a bunch of time in the finals, which they still would have won anyway. But still, it's it's you know you go back and you you look at that anyway. That's that's neither here nor there. Um, no, I agree. And it's it's you know and also the fact that like definitive like these were these were contested seven game series. Like are we like Grant Williams? Banging a bunch of three proves something about the NBA. Is that is that we're, what we're going with? <laughs> I mean, I think it proves something that we already knew, which is that the Bucks can be beaten by teams that hit the yeah. threes that they allow them to take. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it proves it's a, a make or miss league. Now, now, if we want to argue that like the math of of different styles of play changes because Grant Williams is willing to take eighteen threes in a game, okay, like that's that's a. That's a reasonable point to make, but I don't think that I think I, I don't think we're getting that granular in in this kind of analysis. Um, no, I don't think we are either, and and I also think they're not the only team that heavily prioritize the only team in the league that heavily prioritizes protecting the paint and the expensive threes. There are a couple of teams still in that do that. You know, the Heat do that. The Celtics protect the paint, you know, really aggressively. Like the the Warriors protect the basket better than basically any team in the league. They also do a pretty good job of shutting down threes, but you know, they, they basically don't allow anybody to get to the restricted area. It's not like the bucks are the only team that does that. And that means that that style of defense can't work. And also they won the title last year. So clearly it can work. <laughs> on Golden State, you do have to add that their, their scorekeeper helps too, since they are it's the stingiest arena in terms of, of awarding shots at the, at the rim versus kind of floater range in the league by by some margin it has been for since before they were in, in Chase Center. Um, yeah, that's yeah. that is true, but it's also um, the tracking data also shows that they yeah. don't let people get to the restricted area, so that kind of backs it up. Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's it, it exas it's exaggerates the degree, but doesn't change the effect entirely. Or doesn't erase the effect entirely. Exactly. Right. And I mean, I think there's also, um, I can't remember who I saw talking about this, but, you know, there are different ways to prioritize protecting the paint. The Warriors do it in a significantly different way than the Bucks do, obviously, you know, with, with their switching and with their ability to cover space. Whereas with the Bucks, it's so much of it is just guys being huge. Um, right. And I think we no. saw, you know, the difference between the Bucks and the Heat, even, who also 
you know, really prioritize, obviously, protecting the paint. We saw, you know, the, the Celtics in that series against the Bucks basically never got to the rim and didn't make any of their shots when they got there. And just shooting 38% from three was basically what won them the series. And then all of a sudden they were playing a smaller team uh, in the heat and they were getting to the rim, you know, pretty much at will in that first half. And they shot 16 of 20 at the rim in the first half. And then, you know, the heat got back to doing what they do and really did not let the Celtics get anywhere off the dribble in the second half. And all of a sudden they, you know, they went three of 12 at the rim after halftime. So that's, you know, the the Celtics also going through one of their stretches of forgetting how to play basketball, which is sort of mystifying. This is a, for a team as good as they are, they have some of the, they have some of the, 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 I mean, it's not actually, you know, it's, it, it's almost the same thing that has occasionally characterized the Warriors over the year, though obviously the Warriors are a more accomplished team in that just the, like, the, the six-minute stretches of what are you guys doing offensively that the Celtics mm-hmm. can, can, can do? Yeah, it's, it's not uncharacteristic for them anyway, yeah. but I do wonder how much of it in game one was not having two of their most important yeah. rotation players and one who is who has been a very good passer for his entire career and one who became a much better passer this year um, in, in Horford and Smart. Okay, um, you Horford's been a good passer his whole. That's that you're going just just to make sure that's what we're saying is that Horford has been the good passer for his career and Smart has improved. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> just 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 making sure that's where we're going. But yeah, no, I I. I, I I think that's right. No, it's 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 the one of those things that makes the Celtics sort of as hard to evaluate in terms of their offense as any team is. I was thinking about this a lot during the Bucks series, um, especially with respect to like Tatum, but a little bit Brown and everybody else. Is that you know there are times where, and I've said this a bunch of times in a bunch of places, there are a lot of times that series where the Bucks' best offense was the Celtics' offense, and. <laughs> Trying to figure out if if it's just like if they're taking a lot of bad process shots, just sometimes they go in because they have great shot makers, or if there is a real categorical difference between like the looks they're the looks they're getting when they're not when they're not you know giving up three fast breaks in a row versus kind of the the Tatum leader with a guy kind of running up his back with no space off a off a pick and roll and. I, I'm just trying to. I'm trying to, like, really in, interrogate whether I'm just indexing on the ball go, ball go in or not. But it, it, it you know, do, do you think I'm, am, am I being overly cautious, or are there just really times where Boston just like completely loses their mind in terms of like their shot selection and and drive selection, pass selection, and and, and things of that nature? No, I think you're right, and I think a lot of it is because you know. They do. They run their offense the majority of the time through wings who are not necessarily natural passers, but have learned to become more willing and I think, especially in Tatum's case, more able passers. And sometimes those guys can get stuck into like. So uh, there, there's something that I say with a bunch of different players, like the ability to make really tough shots is a great ability to have, but it's better to not have to take tough shots at all. And I think sometimes those guys not necessarily lose sight of that, but they can lean into like, I can make really tough shots. So if that's what we can get, that's what I'm going to get. And I'm just going to take it as opposed to pursuing, you know, the best possible shot uh, on every possession, which 
Um, you know, some other players might lean more. You know, Chris Paul will pursue the best possible shot on every possession, sometimes to his detriment. Um, whereas other guys can lean more into, like, I have the ability to make really tough shots. And if that's all we can get when I have the ball, then that's what I'll take, if that makes sense. No, that I mean, you've sort of just explained Julius Randle's entire season. <laughs> that it, no, he made he he made tough shots all last year. So he, like, if you especially early in the year, you could look at the data and see that he just his 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 shot qual his shot profile was leaning much more towards hard shots this year, just because like yeah, I can make those. And then you know, those are hard shots, so sometimes you miss them, and then that can snowball because now you're not making any shots because all the shots you're taking are tough shots, and your combination of skill set and offense doesn't let you to get let you get easy shots to kind of recalibrate yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think with Boston also, some of it has to do with their got like the the Grant Williamses and Derek Whites. When those guys pass up open threes, it does a lot of damage to their offense. I think, yeah. and that happened um, in in the first half against. Milwaukee. Grant Williams made a three on the first play of the game, and then twice more, twice in the first quarter, he passed up absolutely wide open threes. And then um, I think it was Jared Weiss at the Athletic wrote a story about all the different things that like Jalen Brown and Ime Udoka and Daniel Tice said to Grant Williams. That was just like, if you don't shoot when you're wide open, I'm gonna like slap you in the face. And then obviously he wound up taking 18 threes. In that game, um, he, both he and Derek White passed up too many open threes, I think, against Miami. And when that happens, and then, you know, the ball swings back around to Tatum or Brown late in the clock, and they got to create something, that can have that snowballing effect where they just start doing that earlier in the clock and exclusively on possessions. And that's when teams can really key in on them. And, you know, Tatum can start turning the ball over like he did on uh, the third quarter the other night. I think that's that's sort of an underrated thing about playoff basketball, especially is especially sort of single high leverage games. It's sort of how much can swing on a, on a role player making or missing their first couple shots, yeah, or just not taking one. Like yeah. even if well, they don't, you know, make or miss. Like yeah, you got to be willing to shoot it. Yeah, and, and I think that's um, not to get off track here, but that's been I, I think a really big issue with James Harden the last couple of years. He refuses to shoot the ball off the catch and especially playing with Embiid, he really needs to be willing to do that. Well, uh, playing with Embiid and now like possibly perhaps probably being at a stage in his career where um there's another there's a guy he should share the ball with if if for, you know, maintenance, you know, physical maintenance sake over the course of the season. Like, you know, there's going to be for if Philly's going to play well going forward, there's going to be a, the ball's going to be in Tyree Maxey's hand a fair amount, and he's going to mm-hmm. bend the defense and kick to Harden. And yeah, there are multiple instances in that Miami series where he would like pump fake and then get into his bag and shoot a step back and just not just shoot it. Like you're yep. like like you're a great shooter, shoot it. But because he's he's he isn't comfortable or willing to just catch and shoot, like it, it basically. Like the theoretical spacing he provides basically goes away because, well, we're going to have time to recover because he's going to get into his bag. You would think that catch and shooting would be like riding a bike where like once you know how to do it, you can just do it. And also it's easier than shooting off the dribble. But I think possibly for him spending so many years 
with the ball in his hands like 90% of the time. He legitimately was never shooting off the catch, and now he just doesn't know what to do when that happens. I mean, it, it, you know, he's not the only player. Like Giannis, um, basically, if you if you watch him enough, like his there's sort of a rhythm dribble with his left hand yep. that is part of his like his his sort of should almost be considered a catch and shoot more than just a straight. I have I caught the ball and I shot it because just a, a force of habit or whatever. That's a that's a more natural shot for him to you know unfurl himself. Into into a jump shot by like finding places, finding where the right slots for all of his limbs to go in his shooting motion. It's a little bit more understandable for a guy with uh, you know that frame, I think, than it is. Yeah, for Harden. Yeah. But I didn't want to get us off track. We're talking about you know the teams that are still left. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's it's, it's worth it's worth talking about. I mean, especially because you know the. Uh, these these teams that are doomed because they have big players or something like that, like you know, Embiid <laughs> and Jokic, like you know, it, this is, this is, this has come up a couple times. I think I was doing, uh, I think I was doing uh, uh, um, Gold, uh, Bay Area radio the other day, and this, this sort of came up about Embiid, and like, he's actually, if you think about, it, he's been pretty unlucky in his playoff career. If you think about it, like what kind of success he could have, like you know, between. You know, breaking his face, and in in a situation where I think they, I think Miami would have struggled to contain him had he been right. Um, and we'll never know, but I mean, it's certainly plausible. Um, you know, there's the Kawhi shot that you know bounced 19 times. There was Ben Simmons hurting himself right before the playoffs in the bubble. Um, you know, that's this this a bunch of of kind of 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 misfortune that is that you know he hasn't had any success well why it's like okay well Nikhil Jokic has gotten you know blown out in the playoffs the last couple of years well yeah look at look at what's happened around him to to cause that does that what does that say about you know the viability of your of a center being your best player other than don't have your second third best players be hurt or, or something like that I don't know this is I, I I feel like I'm I'm a broken record ranting about this topic, but it, it, the the micro is so much more important than the macro in these things. I'm in 100% agreement with you. I was going to bring that up if you didn't. I mean, you look at Giannis. Also, Chris Middleton got hurt this year, and like we mentioned, like I mentioned earlier, um, Brooke was still working his way back from you know an injury that kept him out for five months. And I think also people need to remember that. Individual playoff series are like specific organisms where one series really has absolutely nothing to do with the next because it's all about how your style of play and your individual players match up with the other team and essentially beating your opponent over the head with whatever works for as long as it takes until they figure out a way to stop it and then you figure out something else to do and then the the pendulum keeps sort of swinging back and forth between those extremes. And, you know, if, if one team based, like if one team cracks the other team's defense and that team can't make an adjustment, all of a sudden the series is over. And, you know, if they had played against a different team, that might not happen. So for example, um, last year, the, the Knicks beat the Hawks three times in the regular season last year, they won all three games, but in that last game, they were losing until Trey Young got hurt in the third quarter because he was basically completely carving up their defense. He had like 14 assists and 30 points or something like that. But the Knicks came back to win when he was out. And then the Hawks 
destroyed them in the series because Trey Young had figured out their defense and the Knicks never adjusted to what he was doing to them. And that can that can happen in a series. Like if you figure something out, we saw it in the Mavs uh Sun series. The the That's Mavs figured out if they put Chris Paul in a ton of pick and rolls, not only is it going to work really well for them, but also he's going to be worn down on the opposite end of the floor. You know, that's not rocket science. We've seen teams do that in the past with similarly, you know, slight players. You know, the the Cavs did it a million times to Steph in 2016, you know. And, um, you know, if you don't figure out how to account for or adjust for that, then a series can end. And it doesn't necessarily say anything other than, this is what happened. Like the, the Mavs Sun series, what it proved to me was that the 2022 Mavs could beat the 2022 Suns in a playoff series. I don't know that it necessarily proves anything in the larger sense other than that. The, part of the reason that series seems so shocking is it seemed over after two games. Like just, Oh yeah. I mean, I wrote after then, game one, I was under the impression that it might just be over because of the way that they were, toying with Luca off the ball in pick and rolls. And then in game two, they did it with him defending the screener. And I was like, man, there's just going to be no answer for these guys on defense. And then, uh, you know, they found one on that end doing things a little bit differently. And they really found one on the other end in targeting Chris. My, uh, my semi-serious take from that is that they, they, they should have left a little something in the tank in terms of targeting Luca, because it was so obvious and so extreme that they shamed him into playing better defense for the rest of the season. <laughs> I, don't think I, I don't think I actually believe that, but I don't totally not believe it either. And I, I, and I honestly um, don't, think that's something, I don't think that's something you take into account during a, like during a, a, a game. It's like, no, if that, as you say, let's win this game and then worry about the consequences later to some degree. Yeah, I mean, the likelihood of them losing four out of five games at any point was so low. It hadn't happened all season. You know, they, had, they hadn't lost more than two games in a row at any point, I don't think. Um, and they didn't wind up losing three in a row. They lost two, won one, and then lost two. But that, that had to be, you know, an extremely unlikely outcome just just because it happened doesn't mean that you know it was retroactively likely so what did happen like this is the like in game seven there, i have no idea what general, happened. No, i general, still can't explain I mean, they, it they, they i mean they had how, how they had uh, two of the games they had 20 plus turnovers and that's that's you know mm-hmm. very uncharacteristic for them and, and dallas isn't like a run and jump steal the ball team I mean, no, they, they do, don't they force do, many they, turnovers at all. They, they don't they get do, out in transition. They're one of the yeah, slowest. They do run and jump, the but they don't. It's, it's not necessarily forced turnovers. It's to it's to drain clock and and force t- force kind of non ball handlers to make plays. But yeah, and so I just like trying to reconcile that with you know what this team has like what this other team has and has shown all year and. You know, Chris Paul teams for his career have been low turnovers. Like, which, like, what happened? Does it just play bad, or is there something strategic? Is it a combination of both? Like, what what's going on here? Yeah, uh, if I could explain, like, Game Seven, I have absolutely no explanation in the larger sense of the remainder of the series. I think a lot of it was that Chris was physically unable to do the things he usually does because he was taking such a pounding on defense. Um, and then DeAndre Ayton started reverting back to some of the things he did when he was a rookie, where he would just like not physically go up strong and face the basket. There was one play, I think, in game six, where he 
just turned the wrong way. Like he had a wide open lane to the rim to dunk and he just turned over his opposite shoulder for no apparent reason. Um, you know, went from, you know, dominate the game with force like Monty told him last year to whatever that was. It was very strange. And then because Chris wasn't Chris and Aiton was doing whatever that was, they ramped up the pressure on Devin Booker. And I think in game six, at least he sh- sort of struggled with the traps and had a bunch of turnovers. Um, and then, you know, compounding all of those things were uh, Crowder, Bridges, and Johnson just not making shots. Like, everything sort of snowballed on top of each other. And, you know, not to psychoanalyze, but it's just like, hey, we worked all year. We had all this work to get back to you know, a certain point because we were disappointed how last year ended. And now what are we doing? I can, you can see how that could, in the moment, kind of become a big factor. But that's absolutely you know, that's, that's ephemeral, and you know it is also. I mean, we're talking so much about the Suns collapse. We do have to give you know credit to the Mavs for. Um, and then as soon as I'm ready to start giving credit to the Mavs, the, then they they kind of get their doors blown off in the second half by by Golden State last night. Yeah, I mean that'll happen with them. Yeah, you know, um, what what was somewhat surprising to me was that Golden State. Um, usually when they do that, they're like making a ton of threes. Um, they only made 10 threes last night. Um, and it was basically all like they could get whatever they wanted, like layup wise. Oh, it seemed like I did, the threes they made as part of their big kind of second half run were, were pretty noisy though. Mm-hmm. Like there was a, two- like Steph crossing yeah. over in transition, stepping back yeah, Wiggins yeah, yeah. made a couple clay finally hit one where I think he did like the, no bend, just sort of catch and fire it yeah. with uh, yeah, the fingertip threes, the fingertip yeah. three. Yeah. No. So, you know, and, and, that, and that, it's, this is part of the confusing factors. Part of the reason I was worried about Golden State this series is, you know, since about game two against Denver, Steph has just looked okay physically. And then first half last night was what it was. Then second half, all of a sudden, it's, it's water bug Steph again. And mm-hmm. it's just where, like... I'm very confused about these playoffs because it seems like there's little rhyme or reason when different version of a player starts to show up. Like, you know, we got, we got aggressive Jimmy Butler in game one. Will we continue to see aggressive Jimmy Butler in terms of shot taking all series? I mean, history says no, but maybe. Right. Um, Or, you know, like Dorian Fitty Smith had a game where he made eight threes last, uh, last night. He took like four shots, you know, like it's uh, you never know what you're going to see. I mean, that's I, that, I mean, I think that's some of that is, is credit to, to Golden State's defense. I mean, he's a he is a he is a player who is an outlet of other other kind of creation rather than someone who is going to, you know, manufacture his own attempts. But yeah, sure. Um, uh, we could go then to like Davis Bertans, who hit 97 threes in a row against <laughs> the Suns and then went yeah. 0 for 4 last night. Yeah. Yeah. No. It's but and and of course we're, we're reactionizing off of one game and and you know it doesn't matter how much Boston lost game one by if they you know if they come back and win tonight, which is it's it, maybe that's that's part of what makes the made made both of the the, the Bucks and Suns losses more resonant is like game seven happened to, to end up being not close. Or was never close in the case of the, the Suns-Mavs game. But, you know, 
the 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 um you know that that was a pretty good first half of a game seven in in Boston, and then mm-hmm. you know then you know Grant Williams made every shot and and Giannis ran out of gas in the second half essentially, and then and all of a sudden it looked like what was a very close series ended in in I would say comfortable fashion for for Boston. And yeah, I, you know. I mean I think also like. Those were still four three series, you know. Like yeah. it's, it's not like the series were blowouts because the last game ended up being a blowout. And, and I think something a lot of people, you know, myself included, struggle with sometimes is the idea that sometimes teams just lose, you yeah. know, and like because you know that's the way the ball bounces and Grant Williams hits eight threes while the Bucks go like four for thirty, like. It just happens sometimes. You know, some sometimes the Rockets miss twenty seven threes in a row. If two like, really good teams play, only one of them can win. That's true. Yeah. You mm-hmm. know, you can't have four teams in the conference finals. Well, I mean, yeah. Um in each conference, <laughs> sorry. You yeah, do right, you right, right, you right. do have four teams. You can't have four teams from each conference in the conference finals. So with all this confusion. Um, are, are, is Miami winning the title? Is that what's going? Is that where we're going? Like, I, um, I, I mean, two days ago, people were like, "Oh my God, Boston's winning the title!" You know, I, I was one <laughs> of them. I mean, you know, they, but then of course, like, you know, the times we live in. Oh well, okay, now you know they have now now they're missing two starters, including one with COVID, and it's like, and you know, an important role player is uh, out with personal reasons tonight. I mean, I like, I've I read somewhere that that. That you know, Derek White is is having a, a child, so that's a great mm-hmm. reason. Like you know, that's a great reason to miss a game. Um, <laughs> so they, yeah, although it seems like they might be getting Smart and Horford back tonight. Um, yeah. Smart, I think, is probable, and Horford they upgraded from doubtful to questionable midday, which makes it seem like he might be playing. But obviously, we don't know um, COVID-wise how that would impact him on the court. Um, right. Although so, one would one would one would suggest that that if uh, if it was sort of given the the tight window, I mean, it's uh, one game is is probably not a severe course of illness or something like that. Right. Um, but, you know, and they did they do have Robert Williams back, and he looked much better um, physically, I thought, than he did um, against Milwaukee when he was playing early in that series. So that was uh, a pretty good side for them. Yeah. I still am. I am. I am in games where there's not 70 free throw shot. I am curious how Miami's going to score in this series. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it, I think for them is got to be getting out on the break. And that's why that third quarter where Boston had, I think it was eight turnovers was right. so big for them because they they really need a kick in the ass sometimes to get out and transition because their half court offense can bog down. Usually it's Lowry who does that for them, but obviously he's been out. But I think Hero and Vincent in particular really kicking them into gear helped a lot. Gabe Vincent playoff difference maker is playoff difference maker is something that I'm gonna it's it's I'm gonna take some, I'm gonna have to take some time with that one. Yeah, Max Struess too. Uh, uh, the, it's, like the the examples of of all season, why I was skeptical of Miami, are it's like, well, you scratch the surface a little bit, and suddenly there's a lot of Gabe Vincent and Max Struess, and it turns out that's not uh, Al Horford was just upgraded to available. Okay, well, 
breaking news. Um, well, that's yeah. fun. I'm glad, I, you know, just from a competitive standpoint, I'm, I'm glad for that. I mean, I think, I think we should want Boston's players to all be available if for no other reason than it will quash a lot of the, the asterisk nonsense should the series go a particular way. Yeah, um, I'm not about the asterisk life. If somebody <laughs> tries to tell me a series has an asterisk, I basically stop listening to them. Yeah. Um, that's no. just me, though. You, I mean, it's so there's just there's just kind of two sides to that. One, in evaluating it like a team and what it should do next, you have to take the context of the outcome into account. Sure. In terms of of identifying the achievement, what happened happened, and and those those may seem like they're oppositional, but I I just don't see like there's any other like plausible way to handle it. Right. I am in complete agreement. Although sometimes you have a team that, uh, you know, wins a title and then decides on its own, hey, maybe that was an asterisk title. We're going to completely change the composition of our team and pivot it in the exact opposite direction in terms of the way we want to build. Not looking at any particular teams, perhaps. Why are we, t- why are we talking Located about in Southern California. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I'm glad you brought brought that up though, because it is funny that you know now it's decided that you need to be spaced out when like the last two teams that won titles before this year like did it in large part by mashing. Yeah, I mean, the, they also obviously had you know pretty damn good spacing. Um, you know, the Bucks get up a ton of threes. They got a center who shoots a ton of threes. They have Chris Middleton, one of the best shooters in the league. Drew when it Based in when it's not the playoffs, Drew can make a lot of shots. Uh, And, you know, the Lakers surrounded LeBron and AD with pretty much all three and D guys. Yeah. Um, They did play big. Here, here's the thing. And I, and I've, and I've, I've, I've looked at this a number of different ways is that the teams that actually like their, their, get their marginal advantage on offense by being, by shooting by, by the three pointer itself, are pretty low. It's it's much more those teams then also score at high, at either high volume or high efficiency at the rim and win that battle and that's what the three pointer buys them and I think the Bucks are kind of a perfect example of that because like at no point in this run have they ever been a great three point accuracy team it's more just like do it just enough so that you know Giannis can get to the rim often mm-hmm. it's like the opposite of their defense yeah. Well, no, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it's you know, con- controlling the paint is 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 the most it remains the most important thing. It's just that the the three pointer being as prevalent as it is makes it a more interesting strategic strategic challenge than it used to be when it was when oh well, yeah, shoot jump shots we don't care because those are worse than shots at the rim. And before before people took a lot of threes like. That was the reality that teams were just sort of starting to understand, and I think that's a big part of why, like late '90s, early 2000s basketball was so damn ugly. Oh, yeah, I mean, point, point me. <laughs> that's my, that's my food that I ordered earlier. Yeah. It's arrived. Um, no, I mean, I, I agree with you. I think some of it also is because teams put a bunch of guys on the floor that could not shoot, and their yeah. purpose was to do the things in the paint and now you don't see as many of those guys if you don't see many like Xavier McDaniels out on the court in NBA games you know why why is it why is it why is X-Men catching shots X-Men was good 
He, could, he, he could, was he good at the ball, at least. Like you don't, see, what you don't see is a lot of, you don't see the, uh, I don't know, you don't see the Keith Bogans anymore. You don't see the Anthony Bonner. You don't see um, even like a Derek McKee, who was a, a you know a good player and like, and, and he was actually, I mean, he was reasonably skilled. He was just more of a passer than a scorer. Um, you just, you, you know, you're. The, the, the skill level of everything it seems like that seems like the bigger level than your size and it just happens to be easier to find mid-sized guys who, who can uh, mid-sized guys who can who can have, be skilled than it is to find bigger players I was saying that you know it's not just small ball it's skill ball and it's you know it's not just stretch fours it's playmaking fours so it's all about getting guys that can do different things on the court. Yeah. So I think that, I mean, that, that brings us full circle a little bit, like knowing that it's dangerous to do so, what, what limited big takeaways have you taken away from, from these playoffs so far? Um, I think this is something that goes back to the, the early Brad Stevens Celtics teams where Never putting bad players on the court has a lot of value, and that's true in the larger sense of like an overall negative player, but it's also true in the micro sense of don't put a guy on the court who can be repeatedly targeted on defense or don't put a guy on the court who is such a liability on offense like a Matisse Thibel that it undermines your entire offense having guys that are well-rounded and can be live threats at least on offense and guys who can hold their own physically on defense, uh, I think is something that's going to not necessarily become more key. Obviously everybody wants that to begin with, but I think that is something that plays into the move toward like everybody is, you know, six, four, six, nine, and can switch and, you know, handle themselves in space and whatnot. I I think that those things kind of work hand in hand, if that makes sense. Yeah. I, I'm wondering, like, it seems like they're, they're the playoff style of offense that teams seem to default to almost exacerbates the weaknesses of that kind of player. Like, you know, with good playmakers, it does seem like a player like Thibel has attributes that should allow him to be a reasonable contributor on offense. But if your offense becomes suddenly, let's set ball screens until we get a mismatch, then all of a sudden, like, okay, well, he's standing somewhere and no one's standing anywhere near him. Mm-hmm. And so it does- Well, it's also, you know, if you have a big man who's heavily involved in your offense instead of being the floor spacer, and he's the guy that's taking up the middle of the court, then you can't use him like the Nets use Bruce Brown, you know, which we don't know if Thibel can do that. They, there's no reason to ever do it because they have Embiid at the – in in that role when they run pick and rolls, um, you know I, things I are a little bit different depending on who your team you can, is built around. I still think there's stuff you can do off a post player though that is that is more than just like stand. Like you can use him like you know he can be the guy who enters the ball and then cuts through or something like that. And then you know mm-hmm. there's it, it, there, there's all kinds of stuff you can. Do. I don't know. It just seems like it does seem like that the focus on mismatch hunting has has maybe reduced some some degree of offensive creativity and maybe and maybe like switching defense like forces you to do that i don't know but 
it, it does. And that's like, what the um, the Rockets used to bait the Warriors into doing, like get into mismatch ball because we're doing it on the other end, so you're going to do it also. That was sort of their gambit to try to beat them. Yeah. Um, it, it worked to a certain extent in that it did make the Warriors more isolation heavy and get you know out of their you know ball movement, player movement kind of stuff. But it also didn't work because they lost all of those series. Um, and I think a lot of it is like, you know, sometimes the stuff works and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you go matchup hunting and it works really well for you. And sometimes you go matchup hunting and it undermines your offense. And so sometimes it can change from timeout to timeout, uh, as, as kind of the Celtics have shown repeatedly over the course of these <laughs> Yes. Although on the first play out of the timeout with the Celtics, it's going to work basically every time. Yeah. Well, you may can drop an ATO. I'll say that. Yes, you can. I'll say that for them. They, they, they do a lot of really interesting stuff with space, like using space off of timeouts. I really, I'm one, like, almost, it, it almost is like a, like a rugby style play where they start Tatum out near half court and have him try to, like, you know, in, in rugby or off all the times trying to get the guy the ball so he's moving quickly towards the line. And it's sort of like, you know, setting ball screens and flare screens for Tatum with some runway seems like a big part of their their baseline out of bounds game. But you know, that's that's very in the weeds, um, and bringing rugby into it, which you know, who cares? Um, well, that's like uh, the Raptors have their uh, they basically run, you know, what I call a, a tunnel screen in the NFL, where you know they have one guy standing behind like three other guys, and they all like move in concert to set a screen for him as he's on the move. Right. Um, I don't know. This is I was, shockingly we've been talking for for almost forty five minutes, which seems like um, doesn't seem like that long. Um, so we can both so, sort of get on a roll. Exactly. You know. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is there anything else we need to? You know, I don't feel like I'm going to figure anything out about the uh, anything about anything these playoffs. I've I've sort of felt all season that my expectation that this would be like getting back to some sort of underlying trend of the NBA. I, I, that, that's kind of been blown up all season. And I still don't know if we're seeing like trends or we're still seeing the oddness of this year shaking out. I mean, just the, just the, the, the irony of the heat, the team, the, the biggest, like really the biggest worry about them was their ability to kind of have their guys healthy and, and going in the playoffs and they're the team that seems like they are benefiting uh, substantially from everyone else having absences. It's just like, like, and they're overcoming an absence to a guy that yeah. we thought was going to be one of their most right. important players. Um, and they overcame him missing a lot of games in the regular season. They got PJ Tucker doing more than standing in the corner sometimes. Um, so yeah, I mean, a, a lot, I think a lot of things that I thought would happen this year were blown up a little bit. I didn't think the heat would be as good in the regular season as they wound up being because I thought they'd have guys miss time and not play as well. And, you know, you mentioned that already. I certainly did not think the Suns were going to be out before the conference finals. Um, I, I was not very big on Dallas for a variety of reasons. Obviously I was very high on Luca can overcome whatever, but you know, them being good defensively throughout the season was a significant surprise to me. Them continuing to be good defensively in, in the playoffs, you know, they, they basically took away, threes from the jazz who create threes better than anybody in the league. Um, so I've been really, been really impressed by them. Um, I was high on Boston to start the year, but then obviously they got off to a terrible start. 
So that wound up being pretty interesting. Yeah. If I mean, you, I mean, Utah's shown the ability to take threes away from themselves by, you know, completely abandoning the offense they run all season to let certain players just try to be heroes. But I, that's, I think I think we've discussed that offline, and I've discussed that on on this show enough that mm-hmm. we need to get get into that more. Um, You're talking about Rudy Gobert, right? Yeah, absolutely, definitely, one hundred percent. So, I mean, at, at I mean, you know, at at this point, you know, I think we, we it's useful to make predictions and then be wrong to figure out why we were wrong um, later. So I guess I'll ask you, like, from today, from after one game of each of the conference finals, who do you think is winning the title? Man, um, <laughs> you know what? I thought it was Boston before Horford and Smart were out. Now those guys are back. I think they probably win that series. I think I'm going to stick with them. Okay. So, how about you? I, mean, I know you I, were there, but now, I, yeah, I'm. I'm kind. Of, I, you know, based on at least, you know, not to over-index on one game, but it does seem like Dallas might struggle to get looks, and you know, we've seen some stuff about like shot quality being similar. Um, I went back and looked some more, and really through the first three quarters of the game. Uh, Golden State got substantially better shots. Like the fourth quarter, mm-hmm. things got out of hand. Dallas couldn't throw the ball in the ocean. That means they lost by like whatever they end up losing by instead of fifteen. That's not. It's it's, it's immaterial, as far as I'm. Concerned. Yeah, and shot quality wise, they still wound up um, winning by three percentage points. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we can you can measure shot quality any number of ways, but yeah, it's it's also. No, I'm just using like the second spectrum one, yeah, yeah. So, which are, is pretty are, easy to get. Yeah. These are, uh, and also these are, you know, especially at this point in the playoffs, like shot quality comes very, like you think about the shot creators we have on the teams and like what is the shot quality of, of you know, some of the, the shots that Luca or Steph or Tatum or Jimmy Butler take. They're like, you know, those are terrible shots except for a guy it's not a terrible shot for. So is it still a bad shot or is this a shot that he's good enough that it's a fine shot for him? Anything you want to uh, plug? Any, anything else you need to get off your chest? Uh, I had a couple stories go up uh, at 5.38 earlier this week. One about um, what the, the Mavs did to the Suns, and then one about like the, the battle in the paint between the Mavs and the Warriors and how that might play out and how the Warriors basically stole the paint away from the best paint team in the league in the Grizzlies. Um, and it wasn't all about John missing three games because they scored more in the paint in the games that he was out. So people could check that out. I'm sure I'll be on, you know, podcasts and appearances and whatnot throughout, you know, these next few weeks. And uh, maybe one of these years, the Knicks cannot move, uh, can can move up in the lottery. They did it one time, but it was before I was born. I'd like to see it before, you know, at some point. <laughs> well, well, maybe maybe having a coach who would play a, rookie, a good rookie if they got him would be be useful too but that's you know that's that's not allowed i don't think (laughs) anyway uh jared dubin thanks a lot for joining me um i uh think thanks for listening folks whether you're like uh listened live or uh checking out later um i think this is probably the last show for this week unless something amazing happens and i decide to do an emergency show uh be back next week uh and with with more call and shots thank you for listening and take care